did you know that my daughter Eden cries all the time? All the time. Which, by the way, she's pretty good, though. Because anytime, have you ever seen her cry? Has anybody ever seen her cry? A couple of you. She doesn't cry that often, though. She's always really good when we're out and about. It's good. When she's with you guys, she doesn't cry very much. But she does cry. And the funny thing about her cry is she has multiple cries for multiple things. But the thing is, babies cry whenever they need anything. Anything. Imagine if you did that. Imagine if you cried every time you needed anything. And some of you are thinking, that is exactly what I do. You're like looking at the person in your small group, bumping them like, oh, that's what you do. Last, you, you cry all the time, anytime you need anything. But imagine every time that you wanted food, you cried. Imagine every time that you pooped, you cried. Maybe some of you do, but hopefully not, right? That would be bad. Hopefully you don't cry every time you poop. Maybe you have before. But anyway, the problem is she, she poops in her, her, in her diaper, right? So that, that's the worst thing though, because it's like she cries, because she pooped her pants, right? Right? Which is weird, right? But furthermore, get this. She cries when you're changing her, which doesn't seem to make sense to me because she's asking to be changed, right? Right? And then once you do it, she doesn't like that either. And then it's like she doesn't get happy until all of her problems are solved, right? When she's fed and changed and, and like sometimes she gets, when she loves taking a bath, which is kind of fun. She likes the warm water. The girl just likes to be warm. She's like the average woman. She just likes to be warm. Um, <laughs> but it's good. It's funny because she cries about everything. And obviously you don't do that. She's not mature enough to like look at the changing table and think I'm about to be like taken care of. I'm about to get changed. She can't, she can't make that connection yet. She can't look past what's about to happen. That's going to be the problem solving thing. Like the, the change in the diaper. She can't see past that to think, oh, it's going to be good in the future. Well, hopefully as older people, you can see past things like that. Just like when you approach the end of the school year, when you get close to the finals week, you can say, well, finals are coming and that's really hard. But after finals, finals, it's going to be summertime. After finals, it's going to be Christmas time. So you can see past stuff because you're a little bit more mature, hopefully, unless you're still crying every time you get hungry and every time you go to the bathroom. But I'm just assuming you're not. Well, that's a good thing because God wants you to mature and be able to see past what's going on to take some kind of enjoyment and comfort in something that hasn't happened yet. And that's what's going to happen in our passage tonight. God is going to make promises and he's going to tell them, although it is a very uncomfortable and bad situation you're in right now, I want you to change your attitude because I'm promising something good in the future. And the problem is a lot of Christians are not mature enough to see past what they're in right now to see beyond it. A lot of people, and this is obviously a big thing for everybody, we all feel things that hurt. We all experience things that we don't like in this world. And God's gonna say, I have something better in the future for my people. Whether you're going through a really hard life or whether you have a good life, it doesn't matter because I have something better for you in the future if you're one of my people. So we're going to look at this passage, the very end of the book, the book of Isaiah chapter 65. So open up in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65. And he's going to tell these people, you guys need to look beyond your present circumstance to the future because God is going to do something and you need to trust him because that'll change your whole attitude about what's happening right now. If you can just focus on what's going to happen in the future because God's going to do something good. I want you to remember these people that are getting this book for the first time are the people before the time of the exile. Remember the exile thing that happened in the Old Testament? We've just been reading about it in the DBR, right? Where the people of Israel got sent away from their land. Why did they get sent away? Well, because they did what was evil. And Isaiah has said that multiple times. And then the book of Isaiah says, God is going to punish people for their sin. He's going to send them out of the land. And then a lot of people will look at that and say, well, that's really bad. That's terrible. What about me? What's going to happen to me? Now, Isaiah gives some promises from God 
that say, you know what? I am going to judge these people, but in the future, I'm going to do something good for them. We saw earlier on in the book where Isaiah said that God is going to swallow up death forever, which for all of us, that's like the ultimate thing that scares all of us. Hebrews chapter two says, everybody is born naturally fearing death, just like we all fear death. And, and in the book of Isaiah, it's no different. But what he's going to do now is say, even though the Israelites are sinful and they deserve to be punished, God has something for his people that is going to happen at the very end. So what we're going to look at tonight, Isaiah 65 and 66 still hasn't happened yet. Okay. So that sounds weird because you might be thinking, well, this was written so many years ago. How has this not happened yet? Because Isaiah is not just looking towards what happens in the next generation after him. He's looking all the way to the end. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look all the way to the end, and I want you and me to find some comfort in what God has to say to these people. So Isaiah chapter 65 comes after a whole section where Isaiah is talking to God. Remember in Isaiah 62, he's praying to God. Remember what he told people to pray? He says, don't give God any rest. Constantly go to God and pray your kingdom come. Okay, that's what we ended with last time. And then Isaiah proceeds to do that in chapter 63 and 64. And the question he's constantly asking God is, God, what are you going to do about saving your people? Have you forgotten about us? Are you going to abandon us? Because you made all these promises to guys like Abraham and people like Moses. What are you going to do about us? Are you going to do anything good for us? And God answers in chapter 65. Check it out in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Who's he talking about? Right? Well, he's talking about these Jewish people who wouldn't submit to God. Remember Isaiah 55? What did God say? Come to the waters. Come, eat, drink. I'll give you everything you need. And what do the people do? They say, nope, not for me. That's reality for a lot of people who hear the gospel. They hear the truth that God can save them through Jesus. And what do they say? Nope, I want to live for myself. I want to go to the college I want to go to. I want to do all the things I want to do. I want to be a teenager in the world. I want to do all those things. So I'm not going to submit to God. Right? Same thing that they did. God says, I said, here I am to all these people. And to a nation that was not called by my name, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Do you see that at the end of verse two? Following their own devices. The modern day translation for what that means is he says, I offer myself to a bunch of people who instead of submitting to me, what do they do? They follow their own heart. They do whatever they want to do. They follow their own devices, and he goes on to talk about how terrible they were. He says that they were provoking him continually to his face. They were sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, which is all this imagery of all the idolatry where they worship these false gods. And you might say, well, I would never do that. Well, the reality is when you choose anything over God, when God calls you to turn from sin and you say, no, I'd rather listen to bad music and watch bad movies and be seen as a cool person at school, I don't want to follow you, you are doing the same thing they're doing. And the idea is, he says, they're constantly provoking me to my face. Everything they do is right in front of my eyes. And I see it, and I'm not happy about it. He says, they do all these terrible things. And they, they even in verse five, they say, keep to yourself. Don't come near, for I am too holy for you. Or they think the offerings that they're doing, they don't want God involved. They don't want any of the people involved. They're just like, I'm doing this for myself. It's actually interesting that they're saying that when God's really the holy one. And he says here in verse number seven, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities, so not just their generation, but even before, they're all together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, and I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. He's saying, I'm gonna punish these people because they refused to obey me. They, oh, they refused to do what I wanted them to do. Then later, 
check out chapter 66. We're going to skip ahead real quick. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 15. He says, behold, the Lord will come in fire, right? If we were talking about God judging his people, he says he's going to come and it's going to be sudden and people will not expect it, but he's going to come to punish everyone who's evil, everyone who's doing what's wrong. He says, and his chariots like the whirlwind, basically painting God in this picture like a warrior. He's going to come with a sword to render his anger in fury and to rebuke with, fire, with flames of fire. For by fire, the Lord will enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. It's interesting that he's saying at the end, when he's going to come to, to judge the people, a lot of people are not going to be on the right path. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. He says, many are on the road leading to destruction, but only a few are the ones that are following me. I think that's probably true of this room. Many of you are on the path that's leading to destruction, but a few of you are on the narrow road. A few of you are following Jesus. What he says here in verse 17 is, those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens. They go into these places to worship these false gods. And they eat pig's flesh, which was a big no-no. They were not allowed to do that. And the abominations of mice, which is gross, right? So um, they were eating mice. That's weird. But it says here, they shall come to an end together. All of them, all this evil, God is going to take care of. And you might be thinking, wait a minute. I thought this whole sermon was about like being joyful and like being joyful even though we're in hard circumstances. How is this something that's going to be joyful? Right? Well, look at the last verse of the book. This is very interesting. The last verse of the book, verse 24, it says, they, who's they? It says all these people that will live in God's new heaven and new earth. It says they shall go out and look, this is continuing to get gross, it says on the dead bodies of the men who've rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. It's very interesting. He's saying in the end, people are gonna look at all the people that rebelled against God. And the people who are right with God are going to look at them and they're going to say, wow, God was just to do all this. God was just to punish. Because what he was doing was putting an end to sin. Right? I want you to think anything that in this world is bad or not the way it should be, you can trace its roots back to sin and evil and things that are wrong. And here's the thing. God did not originally make us to be living in sin. When he made Ab and Eve, they were not made and designed to live for a short amount of time and then die. The whole point was people were made to live with God and made to live with God forever, made to live with each other in a perfect relationship. But everything that goes wrong in this world has some trace back to sin. And what God promises here, when Isaiah asks, God, what are you going to do for your people? The first thing and most important thing he says is, I am going to punish all evil. I'm going to get rid of all of that in the new world that I'm going to make. So you've got three things on your worksheet tonight, three points tonight. And what I want you to do is before all of them, think about this. God calls Christians and people who are his people to have joy. And we got three big reasons in the text tonight. The first one, we just looked at a bunch of different passages here in Isaiah. Here's what the first one is. Christians, people of God are supposed to have joy and look to the future with joy because of this one first thing. Point number one is this. Have joy today, which is the thing that's above all your points. Have joy today because... Point number one, God will destroy all evil and evildoers, which might sound counterintuitive to you. Like, how can I be happy or joyful that God is going to destroy things, okay? That sounds like a weird thing. How, how is that possible? Well, I want you to imagine um, that someone uh, broke into your house. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but imagine someone broke into your house, and it was really bad. They came in, they smashed uh, the windows, they disabled your alarm system or whatever. They got inside. They stole all your stuff. They stole your PS5, 
um, gone. <laughs> For some reason, you left your phone at home. Not a smart idea, because guess what? They stole it. And then, not only did they do that, they were just really mean. They wanted to destroy your TV, so they just took a baseball bat, and they whacked your TV, and they broke your TV. And they took your bed frame, and they cut it in pieces. And you come home. <laughs> I heard a story about this. It was crazy. Somebody came home, and, and someone had completely destroyed their house. Right? It was like a, like a dog came in there, but really just a person came in and destroyed everything. This person was all messed up in the head. But imagine you come home, and everything is destroyed. And the person gets away with it. They don't get caught. They stole your PS5. They stole all the stuff from you. They, they knew where you, I don't know, keep your wallet at home. And they dug in there. And they took all your cash out. Like, they just stole all these things. And they got away with it. How would you feel about that if they got away with it? And if you came home and your parents said, oh, well, looks like all of our stuff is gone. Whatever. We're not going to do anything about it. You would be like, are you kidding me? They stole all of our stuff. Look at, they, they smashed the TV. They stole my PS5. They, they took my money. All this stuff. We need to catch them. And frankly, you probably wouldn't feel safe until they were caught. Because you know, they know exactly where you live. They know exactly how to get back in. And they can come back and keep stealing stuff from you. Unless they get caught. So there's a certain level of comfort and security you take when the people that did wrong are caught. Correct? That's basically what he's saying here. He says there are people in this world, really everyone is a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. But one day, as we saw in, earlier in the book of Isaiah, he's going to make his people righteous. Remember we saw that through Isaiah chapter 53, where Jesus makes his people righteous. So for the people that refuse to come to Jesus and will not submit to him and continue in their evil way, there's only one way for God to settle it justly and rightly, only one way, and that is to destroy all evil to destroy all evildoers, to take them out of the scene, right? Just like you wouldn't rest secure at night until that thief was caught. That's what's gonna happen in the end. But right now, we look around in the world and the thief is not caught. It's like that time in between. There are thieves everywhere. It's like my house could be broken into. Terrible things can happen. And we see that not only with people stealing our stuff, we see that with our health, right? We see that with our grandmas and grandpas dying. We see that with people in our lives not getting along with us. Sin has infected all of that. And here's what God says. One day I will settle all of it. All of it. You might be thinking, well, if he's going to destroy all evildoers, that's a problem because I'm an evildoer. Correct? Right? Well, that's true. But what did Jesus do for evildoers? It says, remember, he was punished and pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So those who turn to Jesus and repent of their sins and trust in him, they're saved from this. So I'm not saying there's going to be a split of good and bad, and all the good people will go to heaven, and all the bad people will go to hell, right? What I'm saying is all of us are bad. All of us deserve to go to hell. The only people that don't go to hell are the people who trust in Jesus for salvation. You don't become a Christian by being a good person. That's not the point. You become a Christian, you become a saved person by trusting in Jesus for salvation, and he does the saving to you. You don't try to save yourself. He does it to you, but you have to ask him for it. Now, one reason you can have joy is because God's going to deal with sin. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. Right? Maybe if something really bad in your life has happened, maybe you have been wronged or someone in your family has been hurt by somebody and you, you feel this like demand for justice. Someone needs to take care of that. Right? And it seems like people get away with stuff. Right? In the end, God says nobody will get away with it. 
That's why that last verse of the book, it's very interesting. After he gives all these amazing things, and we are starting tonight with the bad news. Okay, I just basically went through this whole text, these two chapters, and we just looked at all the sections where it says God's going to judge. God's going to judge. We looked at that. But that needs to be our primary first understanding of all this, that God is going to rid the world of evil and sin. It says here that the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. That's a picture that people in the New Testament pick up to describe what it means to be separated from God in the end. So picture, the worm shall not die. Jesus uses that language in, in Mark chapter 9 to talk about hell. In the description, imagine, right? Uh, this is kind of gross, but um, you ever seen like a, like a dead rat, like a dead rabbit or a possum, right? What happens after they die? Their body decays. You see some worms maybe, some ants or whatever. I saw a dead mouse on Monday and I saw all these like ants swarming around it and going in and out of it. It was gross, right? Um, but that doesn't last forever, right? That lasts for a day or two or three. And then it's devoured and it's eaten up by all these worms and, and then it's gone, right? And then it's a skeleton and it just decays and it goes in the ground. And, you know, after, I guess, a long time, the bones usually go away in the right conditions, right? They're not turned into skeletons or um, fossils, right? They go away. The idea of the worm shall not die basically is this. Imagine a body that is getting eaten by worms, but the worm never stops eating the body. Okay? Imagine that. Decaying, but not ceasing to decay. Right? That's the idea. Imagine a rabbit sitting there and it never stops getting eaten by worms. You'd be like, this is weird. Are the worms even eating this? Right? Imagine a body decaying or something like a little rabbit decaying, but never actually going away. That's a description. So he's saying, not only will God's enemies be put an end to at one point, and like they're done, and they're separated, and they're, they're gone. It's more than that. The punishment that God has for evildoers is more than just a one-time like banishment away from him. It's a constant thing. It's a constant punishment, right? When we talk about heaven and hell, we see that the Bible describes heaven as a place where things are good, eternally good forever, but hell as a place where things are bad and eternally bad, and they're constantly bad, and they're regularly bad. And it's not just one punishment that goes on forever. It's constantly being punished. The worm shall not die. That's why the next phrase, he says, and the fire shall not be quenched. Right? Jesus uses that language to describe hell. We saw first, the worm shall not die. That's Mark 9, 48. Now, Matthew 5, uh, 25, 41, it's a time where he says, the fire shall not be quenched when he's talking about heaven and hell. Okay? So here's what I want you to see. We talk about heaven and hell. Not only are heaven and hell real places and real things where there's going to be real punishment and real good blessing, I want you to realize the eternal goodness of being with God and the eternal badness, like the infinite badness, the infinite goodness. It's a separation, and we can't have it in the middle. The reason is because of sin. That's why we can't have it in the middle, because God is going to deal with sin once and for all. You might think it's weird to have joy that evil will be destroyed, but the New Testament actually talks like that. One passage that's just really like a parallel of Isaiah 65 and 66 is Revelation 21. And I quoted it last week to you. But Revelation 21 verse 8, after God says all these amazing things about what the new Jerusalem, the eternal state, is going to be like. After all these awesome and amazing things that he says, that's going to be perfect. And there's not going to be crying or mourning or pain anymore. Here's what he says in Revelation 21 verse 8. He says, but after all the people that are accepted with God, he says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the people who won't put their faith in Jesus, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, right? Like we read in the passage, 
and all liars. It says their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So after all this amazing description of how perfect heaven is going to be, then he says, but just know this, the people that don't go to heaven, they'll never be allowed into heaven. Okay? That's why a lot of people have a misconception that if you make mistakes in this life and you, you just, you don't follow Jesus in this life, it's fine because you'll get a second chance later on, right? Maybe in a place called purgatory, right? That's, that's not true. The Bible does not talk about that. It actually says the opposite very clearly here, that there's going to be a place, two places, one of perfectness and one of torture and, and horrible things. And that, that's what we're describing here. But the idea is that's supposed to be a comfort for God's people. How? Okay. I want you to write this reference down. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse five. Second Thessalonians one, five to 10. I know this is kind of intense, but I think you would feel this a little bit more if people were doing more evil things to you. Maybe there are some people in your life that really treat you poorly, really badly, and they, they don't care about God, and they, they refuse to repent, and they don't like Jesus, and they refuse to repent. Okay? Um, if that describes your situation, you have some people in your life, you feel this more than the person sitting next to you. Okay? Because most people in this room probably don't have this acute feeling, but this group of people did. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, we've got a group of people that are being persecuted. These Christians that are being treated badly, run out of town, threatened with death, and some of them were dying just because they were Christians. Paul says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy for the kingdom of God, which is everything we're gonna talk about in Isaiah 65 and 66, the kingdom of God. He says, this is what, what shows, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. He says, it's like if you, for some reason, got mad at my daughter and started, I don't know, like pouring a soda on her face, right? Um, which isn't that bad. I mean, it's bad, but don't do it. But you could pour a lot worse things on her face, right? right? That'd be really bad. So how, how, how am I gonna feel about you when you do that to my daughter, Right? That's not gonna, I'm not gonna be happy with you, okay? Here's the picture, okay? I know that's a weird picture, soda on a baby's face doesn't make any sense, but follow this, okay? How do I feel? I'm not happy with you because you did that, right? Here's the thing. God says, my people, when they're afflicted, when people treat my people badly, guess what? I will not let any of that go unpunished. I will see all of it. And further, I will afflict those who afflict you. Verse number seven says, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, okay? So when is the relief gonna take place? When is God gonna judge the people who did him wrong, who did these, these people wrong, these Christians? Well, not until Jesus comes, not until the revelation of Jesus, not until he comes back in the end. He says he's gonna come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. That means taking revenge on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That's what the worm shall not die, the fire shall not be quenched. Same picture, eternally being destroyed. Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, which is the glory of his might. Remember that? That was last week. Remember where he says, my glory is gonna be with God's people and my glory is gonna be so good, you won't even need the sun anymore. You won't need, even need lights anymore because that's how good God's glory is gonna be with his people in heaven. He says, well, these people will be separated from that light. They'll be separated. He says, and when he comes on that day, Jesus, when he comes on that day to be glorified, in his saints, and to be marveled at 
among all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. He's saying to these Christians, there will come a day when Jesus comes back and he will right every wrong. I know you might not feel that the same way that maybe your leaders feel, or maybe some of you who are treated very, very badly by some people in your life, and there are probably some of you that are treated really badly by people who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus. Here's the promise. God will take care of all of that. You can say, how is that possible? How is that possible? Right? I mean, people treat me so badly. Maybe some of you have been treated really, really badly. Is it possible that God will take vengeance on, on, on the people who did wrong to you? The answer here is yes, he will. That's why this punishment is so bad. So, you know, it's a heavy one, but the first idea is you can have joy today, even if you're being treated very badly, because the promise is one day God will take care of everyone who treats you wrongly and everyone who treats you badly specifically those who treat you badly because you're a Christian. Now, if the security, like I said with the idea of the, the person who breaks in your house, right? You're not secure until that person's caught, right? You don't feel at peace until they're, you know, off the street, so to speak, if they broke in your house. You don't feel that. And as long as they're kept and arrested, you feel safe. But the moment they're released, that's when you don't feel safe anymore. So here's the question. Okay? If God's people are to be eternally secure forever, and if God's perfect new world is going to be perfect forever, how long do these evil people and evil, how long does that have to be kept out? Think that through. How long does it have to be kept out? The answer is eternally, forever. You cannot have a perfect new world if evil is not separated out forever and banished forever. You just can't have it. If you have that coming back, it's a lot like when Satan came to this earth, right? God allowed that to happen, but here's the thing. He allowed it to happen, and yeah, sin infected this world for sure, but God allowed it to happen. Here's what he's saying. In the new world, I won't allow it to happen. It's never going to happen, right? You, you won't be tempted to do evil. There's going to be no devil to tempt you anymore. There's gonna be no, it's all going to be separated and removed from you. That's supposed to be a comfort to God's people. He says, here's the problem though. Who, who are God's people though? Who's going to be there? That's the real question. Because he says here, he's going he's to judge all these people and then embrace all these other people. The question is, well, I want to be one of those people. Who are the people that are God's people? I want to be with them. Well, he has more to say. The problem is, he says in Isaiah chapter 64, which is a good passage to look at. Let's look back in our passage. Isaiah chapter 64, look at verse 6. Isaiah talks this is his prayer, right? He's asking God, when are you going to come back? When are you going to be good to us? Are you going to be good to us? I don't know. That's the question. He says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says, we have all become, all of us, not just the bad people in Israel, but even people like Isaiah. He says, we've all become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, right? Like a dirty diaper, right? We all like a leaf fade away. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. What's the point? None of us are good enough to be with God. None of us are good enough to be with God. So God has to do something. If God wants a sinless, perfect people, in the end, God is going to have to accomplish that. Okay? And that's what we've been studying in Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 54 to 59, when we looked at that a couple weeks back, the whole idea that God has to save us. We can't reach our way up to God. Because if you ever tried to enter a perfect kingdom, that's why Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, you have to be more perfect than the most perfect person ever lived. Can you do that? Answer, no, you can't. So he says, I have to do it 
for you. And that's why he sent the servant. And Jesus, the servant, suffered in the place of his people. It says he took our iniquity, he took on our sin, and then it says, so that we, sinful people, could be accounted as righteous. So that you and me could go to heaven. How can you go to heaven? You have to be perfect to go to heaven. Well, there's a perfect one who came to make us perfect in God's sight. That's what has to happen. So who are God's people? Well, they're the people that are redeemed by Jesus. They're the people who turn and trust in Jesus. So second point I want you to write down. You can have joy today because God will redeem a new people. God will redeem a new people. Who are the people he's going to redeem? Well, the people who turn to him in faith. But remember, this is all God's action. He says, I looked. This is from Isaiah 59. We looked at last time. He says, I looked. There's nobody who is righteous. Nobody who's able to, to, to make their way to God. There's nobody who is righteous. He says, so God says, I have to come on down and do that. He puts on his armor. He comes with the sword and he makes it happen. He's going to redeem his people. Look at Isaiah chapter 65, verse 9. Actually, start in verse 8. It says, thus says the Lord. So God's speaking. It says, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, don't destroy it, and there's a blessing in it. Just a weird thing. I'll explain in a minute. It says, so I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. Okay. Here's the idea. Basically, when they would make this, this wine and this juice, right, what they would do is they would separate out some of the good grapes to be used first. So he's saying, I know if you have a bunch of spoiled things, and there's some good ones in there, he says, separate them out. Don't destroy them all, right? Don't just step on them all yet. That's what he's saying. He's saying, just like you guys do that with, you're making your, your juice, right? That's what I'll do in the end. I'm not just going to step on everybody. I'm going to separate them out. And imagine, you had to separate out grapes. You, you know, when you go to the store and you, you ever feel the grapes, right? <laughs> When you're shopping at the store, you never feel the grapes. You look at them and be like, those ones look squishy. Those aren't good. The one, oh, some of them are good. That's the idea. It's like God's going to separate these people out, okay? which is exactly what point number one was all about. Right? He's going to separate the people out. Verse 9 says, I will bring forth offspring, children. I will bring forth people from Jacob. Okay? Who's Jacob? Okay? He's not in your small group. Who's Jacob? Well, Israel. Okay? Jacob and Israel. Israel is another name for Jacob. Remember Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was one of them, right? He says, Jacob, for his sake, right? From him, I'll bring forth offspring. And from Judah. As remember in the Old Testament, when you say Jacob and Judah, what are you referring to? You're referring to Israel and Judah. What does that mean? The northern tribes and the southern tribes. You're saying all of Israel, all the people that come from Israel. I'm gonna gather from all of them and make offspring. And they will be possessors people who own my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Now he's calling God's people. They're like my servants. Just like Jesus is the servant, he says, my people are like my servants here. God says, I'm gonna make a new people. Look at chapter 66, verse seven. Skip over to Isaiah chapter 66, verse seven. God tells an illustration. He's a story. Just like I told about the thief and someone breaking into your house. Now God's gonna tell an illustration. He says, here's what it's gonna be like. When I make these new people, it's going to be like Zion or Jerusalem or, or Judah, this place that they're living in. Says it's going to be like they're pregnant, right? It's like a woman who's pregnant who gives birth to a kid. He asks them the question, shall a land be born in one day and shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion, right, Israel, Jerusalem, 
right? Really, the city of Jerusalem, Zion and Jerusalem, could be used interchangeably. It says, they're like going into labor, right? She'll bring forth children. The question is, shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause them to come forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who caused to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Here's the question. It's a, it's a weird way of putting it, right? We quite, don't quite understand it. But the idea is, God says, if I'm going to make a new people, and I promise that, do you think that I'm going to change my mind? Do you think I'm going to bring the, all this together, send the servant, do all these things, make it all ready for people to be saved, and then say, nope, actually, I'm not going to save anybody. Do you think that's what I'm going to do? He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to make sure this happens. So he says to all the people, to you and me, here's what we should do. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem. Be happy and be glad for her. All you who love her, Jerusalem, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her. If you've been sad because God's place, God's city has been treated badly, you shouldn't do that. Don't, don't mourn over her anymore. Talks about this, this people drinking abundantly, just having enough to eat, just like just like babies, right? they have enough to eat. It describes that here. Then verse 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. Right? You're gonna be happy. He says, you're gonna be like a baby who's nursed, who's carried upon the hip and bounced on the knee. That's what the people of God is gonna be like. It's like just well taken care of, right? Super loved, comforted by God. That's what it's gonna feel like to be a part of God's people. Like you're just totally taken care of. Later on, verse 19 of Isaiah 66, he says stuff like this. He says, I'm going to gather people from all over the world, and they're going to declare my glory among the nations, right? My people, one day. What is he talking about? He's talking about one day people are going to share the truth about God in all the world, right? This is a hard thing when we come to this text. What does that mean? Is that referring to what's happening right now? Is that referring to what we see in Acts chapter 1? where Jesus says, go be my witnesses all throughout the world, right? That might be an allusion to that. But what it also might be is an allusion to the end where it says in the kingdom, when, when everything is right, the people from Israel, the people from Jerusalem, these natural born Jewish people, one day they're gonna go tell the whole world. They're gonna be the preachers that tell the whole world about the glory of God. That might be what it's referring to too. So it's kind of hard for us to look at this text. It's not super clear which one it is, but the point is one day everybody will know who God is. Everybody will know who God is. Well, how is that possible? Well, because God makes a new world, right? Makes a new world. What does he do first? Well, he makes a new people first. That's why in the book of Revelation, there's a song about Jesus that's sung in Revelation chapter five, verse nine. You can write that down. Revelation five, nine and 10. It says they sing a new song. And they said something to Jesus. They said, Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll, this scroll of judgment, and to open its seals. For you were slain. You're worthy to do this thing because you died. You were killed. Well, what does that mean? Well, by your blood, you ransomed, you bought back people for God. From where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. God did something. And what he's doing right now we're in the middle of something God is doing, which is so cool. Think that through. We are in the middle of something that God is doing. God is collecting and gathering people from all over the world to be his people. He's doing it right now. If you've become a Christian in the last year or so, right, then the last year or so, you've been gathered into this people of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what your parents do. It doesn't matter where they came from. Like, it doesn't matter because God is collecting people from all over from every background, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And what God did 
through Jesus as he made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Priests to our God. That's weird. Where does that come from? Well, look at verse 20 of our passage. Isaiah 66, 20. Then you should bring all your brothers from all the nations. You should bring them an offering on horses and in chariots and in the litters. All these, all these things that are like impressive transportation units, basically saying. They're coming with, with horses and with all this amazing you know, expense. It's like driving expensive cars you know, into a valet is the, basically the picture here. It says, they shall do all those things. And verse number 21, and some of them I will also take for priests for the Levites, says the Lord. Which is why when you read the book of Revelation, right? I hope you never read it the same after studying the book of Isaiah because like so much stuff in the book of Revelation is just, just directly tied back to the book of Isaiah. There's so much stuff. And I think this is one of those things that Jesus is making a whole people right now, which is if you're a Christian, that means that you are a Jesus follower, which means you're a part of this group. Okay. Well, who are the people that are part of this group? the people who did not refuse God's offer of repentance, the people who did repent and turn to the suffering Savior. That's who's included in these people. Because he's going to gather them from all the nations and they're going to declare God's glory in all the earth. Everyone will know that God is the Lord. And I think that's what's happening right now, even with Christians. We're going out into all the nations declaring that God is the Lord, that Jesus is the only way to God. We're in the gathering process right now. We're not at the end we're declaring the glory of the nations. We're in the gathering process right now. But you can have joy because God's redeeming a new people and hopefully you're a part of that group. That's really why you can have joy. If you're a part of that group, you can have joy. You're in chapter 66, verse 21. Look at the next verse. Chapter 66, verse 22. Everybody check it out in your Bibles. Isaiah 66, 22. He says something. He says he's making something that's brand new. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So he says, the new world of God will last forever and the new people of God will last forever. So when we look at the, the world that God made, put us in the Garden of Eden, right? There's a fall. People went into sin. The question that we should all ask is, will that ever happen again? When we are in a perfect world, could that ever happen again? Could we sin our way out of heaven? Here's the whole point. God makes the promise over and over again in the Bible, no, that will never happen again. I will make sure of it. Sin will never enter this new world. He says, from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Why? How is everyone worshiping the Lord? Well, because, Revelation 5, verse 10, Jesus is making a people group, a new people, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And one day, They'll be the only people that are left to worship God. So how can you have joy? Well, God's going to destroy evil. Number two, God's going to redeem a new people. But number three, God's reversing the problem of sin. Point number three, you can have joy today because God one day will reverse sin's curse. One day, God will reverse sin's curse. What does that mean? Remember when, and I alluded to this earlier, when God made man and woman, Adam and Eve, were things good or were things bad? Answer, Things were good, right? He says in Genesis 1.31, he says things were not just good, they were very good. But what happens? They choose to do what's sinful. So now anything that you think is wrong, which again, I know that sounds like a vague, weird statement. What I mean is think about everything that you don't like. Okay? There's a trace back to sin. Either you were in sin for not liking what is righteous or you are righteously realizing you don't like something that's sinful. Okay? Anything that's bad, whether it's bad health, whether it's people in your family dying, whether it's things that are hard at school, 
right? Everything has a trace back to sin, whether it's your fault or it's just in the world. There's sin at the root of those things. Genesis chapter three says that when the people chose to do what was sinful, God said, the world is gonna be cursed. Not just you, but the world around you is gonna be cursed. He said to the serpent, which remember, the serpent, that was, that was Satan, came on and seems to have took, taken this um, form of an of a animal. Weird thing is, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures or paintings of this, but a lot of pictures and paintings draw Satan in the Garden of Eden as a serpent, but not like the serpents you've seen. That this serpent had hands and feet and legs, which is weird, right? You might have seen pictures that look like that. Maybe not. But the reason for that is because what God does to curse the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you, snakes, above all livestock under heaven and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. It's like in that moment, that's why, again, it doesn't say this explicitly, but that's why a lot of maybe pictures or paintings you've seen of, of Satan he, in the garden, he doesn't look like a real snake. He looks like a snake with arms and legs. That's because this text says that when he's cursed, all the snakes, God said, guess what? You lost your arms and your legs, right? What's the most uncomfortable way to walk around? Well, I guess if you just laid straight on your face and just kind of had to like slither around, I guess that's the worst way to walk. Okay, great. That's how you're going to walk. That's what it says here. And Genesis 3, he says, on your belly, you shall go. And dust, you shall eat all the days of your life. You see that? Eat the dust. We even say that, you know, it's different. It means something different. It means follow someone in a car or a motorcycle. But when people say, eat my dust, right? What does that mean? Like, I'm, I'm going in front of you. You're behind me, right? What's the point? It's not exactly the same analogy, but it's the same thing, eating dust. The point is, it's like you're in, on the ground eating dust. That's not a, like a great place to be. See how it says, eating dust, eating dust, eating dust, eating dust. Do you want to eat dust? Like eating dirt? Okay, you don't like eating dirt. Eating dust. I'm going to say it again. Eating dust. Is that in your head yet? Okay. Look at Isaiah chapter 65, verse number 25. Isaiah 65, 25. What do you think we're going to see after I said the serpent was eating dust? You don't have to be a genius. This is not common core math. Okay. What do you think we're going to see? Isaiah 65 verse 25. Look at it. This is promising what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? This new place where God is going to dwell and where Jesus is going to be on the throne. What's going to happen? Well, it says the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Right? Does that happen now? No, because the wolf eats the lamb. Right? If you've ever seen you know, Animal Planet or watched a YouTube video of like wolves attacking little helpless sheep, right? It says, but one day they'll live together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, right? What do lions eat now? Not straw, right? They eat animals, right? They're carnivores. They'll eat you know, big animals and they'll take out antelopes and they'll you know, chew on other animals or gross things. You, know, you, you can look up the YouTube videos. You've seen it before, right? You can picture the lion like eating an, another animal. It's gross and it's bloody, right? Okay, it says in, in this day, lions shall eat straw. They're not gonna eat other animals. They're not gonna attack other animals. And look what it says next. Dun, 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 dun. Dust shall be the serpent's food. Interesting. I prepared you by saying eating dust, eating dust, right? 
why did I say that? Well, I think that right there is the key to understanding what's happening here. When God curses the serpent, what does he say? You're going to eat dust. Here, he's saying all these good things, which it's weird, like the wolf and the lamb, the lion and the ox, it's all going to be good. And guess what the serpent's going to do? He's going to eat the dust. I don't think he's just talking about snakes there. Okay? I think he's talking about Satan there. Saying Satan is going to be removed. He'll be cursed. He'll, he will be the one that's removed. Sin, death, all that stuff, the curse of sin, that's what's going to be removed. Which is why... In Genesis 3.15, the next verse that was in Genesis 3, God makes a promise. He says, I will put enmity. You, Satan, you're going to be at enemies between you and the woman, Eve, who ate the food. And between your offspring and her offspring, he, the offspring, the child of this woman, some person down the line who's going to be from a woman, interestingly enough, exclusively, says, shall bruise your head. There's going to be like this snake. Imagine a snake. There's going to be somebody who steps on a snake's head, right? That might hurt, but he says, you'll have your head bruised and destroyed and crushed, but in the process, you are going to bruise his heel. What's the promise there? God's promising from the very beginning, Satan will be destroyed one day, but how is that going to take place? Who is going to do that? Well, in Isaiah 53, we see the answer. Jesus does it. And is Jesus just harmlessly, you know, oh, I'm just going to come and destroy Satan. And it's going to be all easy and okay, boom, 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 done. No, that's not how he did it, right? He came and he was crushed for our sins and crushed for our iniquities. That's how he took sin upon himself. He was bruised. He was the one. His, his heel, right, was, was bruised by all this. And then there's promises of judgment after that. And in, in, in Genesis chapter three, he says to the woman, I'm going to make giving birth hard which is interesting. Again, Isaiah 66, what does it talk about? Woman giving birth, right? And then it says to them, to Adam, you're going to eat of the ground, but it's going to be hard for you, okay? Look at Isaiah 65. Look at verse 21. Isaiah 65, 21, back in your text. After the curse says eating is going to be hard, and you're going to work really hard, and things are going to be really bad, and then maybe you'll get some food. Look what Isaiah 65, 21 says. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build, and another will inhabit. Right? They're not going to build a house to get taken over in war. And they shall not plant and be eaten by, the, the food be eaten by another. What is he saying? He's like, Isaiah's reminded us, go back to Genesis 3. It's the curse. It's the, the curse is going to be taken away. The, the food curse is going to be gone. Right? The, the childbearing curse is going to be gone. Right? Satan is going to eat the dust. Don't you see that when Jesus makes this new heavens and the new earth, the curse will be gone. All of it's going to be taken care of. The New Testament puts it like this. He says, this is Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That reminds us of point number one, right? One day God's going to destroy all evil, all evildoers. What about now? Well, look at verse 17, Isaiah 65, 17. I've been kind of working backwards in this, but I want you to see this. It says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So this new world is going to be so good that this says, if you're one of God's people, you will have a hard time remembering what it was like to take algebra quizzes. You'll just have a hard time remembering it. You will have a hard time remembering all the bad things that took place on earth. Why? 
You're going to have a hard time remembering how you got tired and sick. You're going to have a hard time remembering all that stuff. Why? Because this new world is going to be so good. It's going to just fill your whole mind. New heavens, new earth. It won't come to mind. But verse 18, be glad and rejoice forever. Then or now? Well, then we'll definitely be rejoicing forever. But I think the command goes further, which is why every point tonight, I don't know if you noticed that, but it's all about you should have joy because God is doing something. You should rejoice and be glad forever right now in that which I create. So God's gonna make this new world, but you need to get excited about it right now. You should rejoice right now. You should thank God for it right now. It says, and her people will be a gladness. So Jerusalem is gonna be a joy. God says, I create Jerusalem, this city, to be a joy, and my people will be a gladness. God's gonna be happy with his people, right? which is the opposite of Isaiah 59, verse two. He says, I turn my face away from my people because of their sin. But now he says, no, no, I'm looking to my people. I love my people. It says in verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad of my people. Who's I? Who's talking? God's talking. He says, you guys right now, hey, get excited about this new city that God's making, this new world, because it's going to be awesome. All the curse is going to be gone. But also, just know this, God will be happy with the place. And further, even more importantly for us, it says God will be glad in his people. A lot of people, maybe you've heard this before. A lot of people talk about God being happy with people. And most of that is just garbage. It's just not true right? Just he, he loves the people so much and they're just, he just loves them as they are and they're so great. No, we're sinful. We need our sin taken care of. But this says one day God will be happy and pleased with you. With you. Why? Is that because you earned your way to God? No. Because Jesus makes you holy and righteous and he'll be happy with you. Again, if, if you don't know God, that, that probably doesn't matter to you, right? But if you know God as your savior to think that he could ever be glad about you and me. That's amazing. It says he'll be taking joy in his people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. It says in verse 20, no more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. Right? That's like one of the saddest things ever. Right? When little babies die. That's not, never going to happen again. This is an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. It's like if a person were to die, be like they, they'd be accursed, right? A lot of people look at this and the only time and place that that little command makes sense is in that kingdom that is described in Revelation 20 where God's gonna have this kingdom on earth before the very end where Jesus does reign. He calls it the, the thousand year reign in Revelation 20. That seems to be the only place that that little tiny detail makes sense. But when we're looking at this whole section Isaiah, I think he's talking about all of the end. He's not talking about one particular part. He's looking at all of it. So he says, yeah, there's gonna be new heavens and the earth, but also in this time when God makes everything right, there's also gonna be a time where people are gonna live and die. And he says, if you lived a hundred years, it'd be like you died like when you were 13, right? So he says, there's going to be a time where people are going to live for a long time. I think he's talking about that, that thousand-year kingdom that he's talking about. Which is why the book of 2 Peter, we've looked at that a little bit, but the book of 2 Peter tells you and me to do something about this. 2 Peter 3.13 says, But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay? 
whenever you read verses like that in the New Testament, you have to think, what are they thinking of? What passages are coming to their mind? And the, the answer to that is Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. That's exactly what Peter's thinking about. I know it's, what he's, it's the only time, right? In the Old Testament, so clear. He's making new heavens and new earth. Peter's thinking of that, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in this new world, guess what? You're gonna have a brand new body. You're not gonna live for a short amount of time, right? God has to remake your body. You're gonna live perfectly. That's why you'll never get sick. You'll never, you know, get cut. You'll never, you know, have a, I don't know, a concussion. I don't know what injuries you guys go through. Maybe concussions, right? Broken arms, broken legs, right? Tweaked fingers, right? Jammed fingers. I got a bunch of jammed fingers um, playing basketball and football when I was your age. That's why all my knuckles are weird, I think. Um, yeah, come see him sometime. They're really weird. Um, probably means I'll have arthritis when I'm an old man, but we'll get there when we get there. Point is, Paul says, and really God says, he's going to make a new body for everybody. You're going to have a perfect body that will live forever. The interesting thing about all this is Jesus also makes the promise to us. We have it written here in the book of Romans that the new creation, when he makes everything new, it's going to be bodies, new spirit. Like We're going to be perfect. But there is one element of that that is true right now. There's one part of God's new creation that is true right now, that's already been happening. Okay. Romans 8 says it's the spirit that God has put in us. We are the first fruits of his new creation. The point is, it's like, imagine you're planting something and a little tiny, you know, first fruit comes out. You're like, oh, that's awesome. That's the first fruit. That's what this whole tree is going to look like, right? He says, right now, we are the first fruits, our, our regeneration, which means when we're made new in Christ, when you're born again, our spirit's like, we are the new creation. That's why, again, remember, God's going to create something new. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. God's going to do that. That theme runs all throughout scripture. The point is, says we are like the preview of what's going to happen. Our, our souls get remade. Our souls are revived with new life when we're in Christ. That's like what everything's going to be like. When you feel forgiven and, and your sin is atoned for, and you feel new in Christ when you become a Christian. That's what it's all going to be like. Body, soul, spirit. It's all going to be like that in the new world. Isaiah 65, 66 say over and over again, rejoice, 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 joy, 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 joy. Right? Like, well, that was kind of like a, a lot of bad stuff that happened in that sermon. So I, I don't want to get all the rejoice, rejoice stuff. Well, they say that when the song Joy to the World was written, right? It's a Christmas song, right? They say it wasn't really about Christmas. I don't know if you ever heard that before. Um, it's based on uh, mainly Psalm 98, but also on these two chapters uh, where the author, Isaac Watts, he says something about um, joy that's going to take place on the earth when Jesus comes. And the song, right? You guys know that song, Joy to the World, right? It's Joy to the World, the Lord is come. The world will not be happy. The world will not be fixed until Jesus comes. Just let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. So even right now, before Jesus comes back, it's like your heart is supposed to get ready. You're supposed to think Jesus is coming back. And then it says, let heaven and nature sing. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Why nature? Right? Because everything that we just talked about, right? that he's gonna make a new earth. Romans 8 says, the whole creation the natural world waits with eager longing for the time where Jesus comes back. 
Then it says, joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Let them sing. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. What's the point? One day when God makes the world, it's not just going to be us. It's going to be the whole thing is going to be perfect. They're going to be joyful. Then it says, let no more let sins and sorrows grow. That's what the, the third verse that nobody sings, right? It says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. What's that talking about? It's the curse. Saying the curse is going to be gone. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Right? It's exactly what we're talking about in Isaiah 65 and 66. The point is, one day when Jesus comes back, which is Christmas time, we celebrate his first coming. Right? What we're doing tonight is thinking his second coming. What's going to happen? Well, heaven and nature and the world and God's people will all rejoice. But here's the thing. We need to take that joy and live it out right now. Because just like we talked about at the very beginning, if we're mature enough to think through the hard times right now, we can see past the hard times that Christians are in right now and look to the future and say, Jesus is gonna make a new world with his new people and he's gonna destroy evil and sin forever. And that can get us through a lot of hard things because we know that these are not just hopes. These are not just fairy tales. This is the truth. This is what God has promised and this is what God's gonna do. Okay? So we need to trust him. We need to take joy. We need to rejoice even tonight. So in small groups, we're gonna talk about that, what it means to rejoice, what it means to celebrate what Jesus is gonna do in the future. But let's pray to him right now before we go to small groups. God, I pray that you would help us see this. Pray that we'd be more joyful this Christmas time as we think not just about what you've done in the past as we studied Isaiah 53, but today as we look at Isaiah 65 and 66, as we look to what you're gonna do in the future, I pray that we would have joy, that we as Christians would look at your promise to take away sin one day and we'd have joy. That we'd look at your promise to redeem a new people from all over the world and we'd have joy in that. We'd also take joy that you're gonna reverse every sinful curse, all that stuff that the world is burdened with now, you are going to take it away and your people are gonna live in a perfect new world forever. Just pray for the people tonight who've heard this gospel, who've heard the truth and have rejected it and not responded. I pray that they would be convicted tonight I pray that they would look at all that you're gonna do in the future, your judgment and your salvation, and they would turn to you tonight, that they would see their need for you, that they'd see their need for a savior, and that they would repent, they'd give their whole heart to you. They'd say they wanna live in this new world, and they, that they would trust you forever. You know, the only way that we can go is if our righteousness is better than the best. We know that's only possible through Jesus. He makes us sinners who are like, offering dirty, polluted garments to you. He makes us righteous and clean. So I'm thankful that he saved me. Thankful that he saved many of the people in this room. I pray that he would save um, even more, that you would make that happen tonight and throughout the rest of this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.